1: This week's episode of The Secret Library Podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. To get a 30-day trial complete with a free audiobook download, visit secretlibrarypodcast.com audible. This is The Secret Library Podcast, episode 103. This week, my guests are Catherine Isaac and Tom Rockman. And basically, um, the way that we line guests up is that it lines up with when books come out. But I'm always amazed by the themes that converge from books that I wouldn't necessarily have put together. And that's especially true this week with both Catherine Isaac and Tom Rockman, who've written books that have to do with parenthood, um, relationships between fathers and sons um, and they had some really lovely themes that paired together which i wouldn't have necessarily seen unless um, the timing of their episodes worked out to go together so that's always a real treat and i know you'll enjoy both of these conversations Um, a couple of announcements for the show i really want to thank everybody so much for the thoughtful responses i got to this past week's newsletter Um, in which we were talking about uh, a lot of the really upsetting news that has come out recently with lots of people that we respect or or institutions in addition that we've respected, like the Nobel Prize Committee and Juno Diaz, among others, um, and Sherman Alexi, other people that, you know, there's been a lot of developments around the Me Too movement. And so I took a risk and wrote about it in the newsletter and had a lot of really lovely responses back. So I want to thank everyone for taking the time to write in. I also want to thank um, everyone who left reviews in the past week or two on iTunes. They're really sweet and mean a lot. I read all of those comments whenever anyone leaves a review. Um, And those really make a difference. They help people find the show and support the growth of the Secret Library podcast. So I want to thank you all for subscribing to the newsletter, which you can do at secretlibrarypodcast.com. I want to thank everybody for leaving reviews on iTunes, which you can do at secretlibrarypodcast.com slash review, which will take you right to the feed. Um, In addition, I really want to thank everybody for their support of the Patreon. We do have um, a a relationship with Audible, which gives us a small amount of support, um, but it really means a lot that you all sign up to support the show on Patreon as well, because that gives us um, evidence that the show means something to you and that you want to support it continuing. So with all those things said, I'm really eager to get to this week's interviews, so we will get on with the show. Catherine Isaac was born in Liverpool, England. She studied history at the University of Liverpool and then journalism at Glasgow Caledonian University and then began her career as trainee reporter at the Liverpool Echo. She rose to the position of editor of the Liverpool Daily Post, and then wrote her first book, Bridesmaids, while on maternity leave, under the pseudonym Jane Costello. Her nine subsequent novels were all Sunday Times bestsellers in the UK. You, Me, Everything is her first book writing as Catherine Isaac. She lives in Liverpool with her husband Mark and three sons. In her spare time, she likes to run, walk up mountains in the Lake District, and win at pub quizzes, though the latter rarely happens. I was really, really excited to have Catherine on, not only because I really enjoyed her book, but also because I think she represents a shift that we're seeing in writing, which is basically that... It's very important, this concept of brand, that you become a certain kind of brand as a writer, and that if you want to write a different kind of book, it's much harder to do so under the same name these days. So when Catherine realized she wanted to write a different kind of novel, she just as clearly realized she couldn't use the name Jane Costello anymore. She had to write under a different name. So I was fascinated by this process, the process of realizing she wanted to do something different with her writing life and how she became a different kind of novelist through that process. So I really adored having this conversation. And I know you're really going to love meeting Catherine. So here we go with Catherine Azik. Hi, Catherine. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Well, it was... Such a delight reading You, Me, Everything. As I said just before we started recording, I think I read it in about two sittings and was sadly neglecting some house guests to sneak away and read the book.
0: Oh, that is that is just lovely to hear, it really. I'm very sorry for your house guests, obviously, but delighted that you've enjoyed the book.
1: Definitely. So I want to talk about the book first and then I want to talk a little bit about some unique insight you have towards writing for different markets. But let's just talk about the book first, which is, I think, I'm interested in how you came up with the story, which has um, not just a lovely story with a lot of wonderful characters, but also a plot line that includes a significant health challenge. I don't know how else to put it. And there are complexities to this. I want to let people read the book, but I'm interested in how you came to choose that plot line and... Mm -hmm. If that was a, something you had personal experience with, it reads like you you mm. know the illness quite well. Um, but I also was interested in whether you plan to write a book with an illness in it mm. uh, and how you chose which one.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, actually, I know somebody who um, had, his mother was diagnosed with the same condition that Jess's mom in the book is diagnosed with um and, and we're kind of talking around the issue here rather than being too specific because we don't want to obviously give too much away about it but um yeah this this uh, the, the guy i know is in his late 20s and his mum was diagnosed with the condition and i was i was really struck at the time by just how devastating it was not just for for his mum but for the entire family in very different ways and, um, the enormous challenges that it, um, presented to all of them. Um, and so I, 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 thought a lot about that for a couple, well, a good few years, actually. Um, I, I was actually writing under a previous name. Um, I was writing romantic comedies before, before this novel and this, you know, this, this issue, the, the issue of the disease was, you know, I, I, I came up with this idea of a story step that stemmed from that, but it just wouldn't have fit. It just wouldn't have worked um, as a romantic comedy. It just didn't lend itself to it, it, to, to the kind of books that I wrote, um, and it was really only after a great deal of thought and discussion with my with my agent and. Um, you know, my my UK publishers who were very happily publishing my romantic comedy novels and really, you know, would have been quite happy carrying on like that. Um, you know, they took a bit of persuading that actually I wanted to do something um, a bit more ambitious and, and, and this definitely has been more ambitious for me. Um, so that really was where it all stemmed from.
1: That's amazing. I think that's, so that brings me to I want to keep talking about that, and I also want to talk about the challenges that people may not know the inside of, which is how you can get pigeonholed into a certain type of book, Mm -hmm. and the sort of changes that are necessary in order to explore different topics at certain points. Mm. So how did you begin writing um, the Jane
0: Costello books? Yeah, well... Actually, you know, I had a, a lovely, very enjoyable career writing as Jane Costello. Um, you know, Jane Costello was never known in the US, so it won't be a name that any of your listeners are familiar with. But I, you know, I had some um, a couple of top ten bestsellers in the UK, um, and was enjoying this kind of moderately successful existence and as an author that I really loved. Actually. Um, and I'd first started writing those books when um, I was a journalist beforehand. I was a newspaper editor. I was the editor of the Liverpool Daily Post. Um, and when I was on maternity leave with my first baby, um thought I would take the opportunity to kind of, you know, in between changing some nappies, I'd, you know, write this, this novel that I'd wanted to write all my life. And that was the theory anyway. It proved to be... Significantly more difficult than than I than I ever thought, um, and uh, but but actually I gained the attention of a of an agent um, from the first three chapters of, of my book, and after to cut a very long story short, um, after many many sleepless nights and a really kind of exhausting first year um, of you know looking after a baby, then going back to work, trying to finish the novel. Um I eventually got a publishing deal and that really was how it all started. Um, but yeah, so I wrote a book a year for a decade, basically. Amazing. And um, really enjoyed it. But I think that, you know, there does reach this kind of, you reach a point where you, you feel ambitious, I suppose, as an author, mm. um, not just in terms of, well, certainly in my case, it went beyond book sales. It, it just, I just wanted to write something a different and um, spread my wings a bit and um, you know use my I suppose you know my creative urges in you, you know to, to take myself in a, in a direction that I hadn't been in before um, and really that that all kind of coincided with me um, signing with a new agent and uh, who well the, the agent that I signed with actually looks after Jojo Moyes as well and some really oh. big names and so so she was really she was just as ambitious as as I was and um and and that so that kind of all dovetailed and that was how how you me everything really that I you know had the courage I guess to to jump out of the genre I'd become known for and write something different.
1: That's really exciting I mean I think it is a challenge that you see it in lots of creative careers I mean it happens with musicians it happens Mm. with artists you know if you've started doing something because you're creative you can't really turn that energy off and just kind of go in one track forever I think that would be really challenging to not be able to reconceive what you wanted to do
0: exactly and my um I have to say you know my my UK publishers have been you could have been very awkward about the whole thing because like I say you know they were um they were kind of publishing me one book a year they were very happy with how things were going and I you know we did kind of spring a surprise this surprise on them really um and they were quite kind of shocked with the the novel that I'd ended up writing so and and really all credit to them that they they have kind of embraced it now and um you know they they considered actually publishing this novel under the name Cas- uh, under the name Jane Costello um but, but basically came to the conclusion that because it was so different from anything else I'd written and because the rest of the world was publishing it um, as Catherine Isaac, that they too were going to take the leap. And, and, you know, I'm happy to say that they, they've they've done it. They've done that.
1: It's interesting, too, because I wonder, I mean, it's not sort of like um, you're in the witness protection program, as we call it in the US, you know, where, where you're like, your, your life is in danger, and you've had to be hidden by the FBI, because you've been a witness in a high crime case, like if somebody really wants to find out that Catherine Isaac and Jane Costello are the same person, then they can. And so I think you in some ways, you still benefit from those readers who may say, Oh, this is, I actually even remember, I was looking through some of the reviews. And someone said, I didn't know how it was going to be, you know, reading Catherine Isaac versus Jane Costello. And I'm Uh happy to report it's every bit (laughs) as wonderful as I hoped. And I think that's a nice thing that you can kind of shift it. And how much do you think is true nowadays? I mean, granted, you weren't, you know, writing back in like the 60s, but it's but it does seem to me like maybe there was a bit more permission then for authors to change direction and now we, in this age of like Instagram and and mm-hmm. personal branding, you're kind of one kind of writer or another, yeah. much more so.
0: Yeah, that that is definitely the case. And and actually, the um, yeah, you you do you have a but you have this entire kind of you know authors these days don't simply write books. We're expected to be on social media everywhere you know you do we do this kind of thing we do interviews we we write articles and you know so you've got um you know you've got a brand and a persona that goes far beyond the pages of of your novel and and i think that that it's for that reason that a lot of it's not uncommon for authors to take the same route that i have um i was actually the london book fair yesterday um just i'd I'd gone to london to have dinner with one of my um one of my other publishers and um there were several other authors there and out of the six authors there two of them and myself so three all together wrote under two different pseudonyms um because they had these very different um you know basically they were writing very different kind of books and i think it would um you know i think it's i suppose it's easier for readers to readers know what they're getting from from or knew what they were getting from a Jane Costello book and i think if i if, they, if they'd have, if i'd have presented this particular novel you me everything as a jane costello novel it would have been uh it you know i think it would have been a been, bit of a shot to the system i suppose because it deals with themes that are far far deeper than anything i'd written previously
1: absolutely yeah, it is. It's interesting. It's like reader expectation um, has become much more segmented. And I think it's because in some ways, it's good. I mean, people know what they like to write, people know what they like to read. Mm. And so there's, there's sort of room for everybody. Mm. And I don't think, I don't know, I think that there may have been a different attitude towards writing under a student and before versus now, it's like, oh, great. Yes. I mean, the thing that I think of
0: immediately is how fun to come up with the names. <laughs> it is it was good for well Catherine is actually my middle name and Isaac is the name of one of my three sons. Um so the other two were were a bit annoyed at first but they're they're over that now. We're we're fine. But it did it took some some getting because I'd spent a decade of doing these kind of reader events and book festivals as Jane Costello. Um, it did it took quite a few you know it took a bit of time for somebody to call me Catherine and for me to not look over my shoulder wondering who on earth they were talking to um (laughs) so so, but I'm used to it now I think you know this this book has been um it's been quite a long time in in production this novel um so so I'm kind of used to it now and there's been a lot of hype around it and you know, that's that's really increasing in the UK in particular um, and and now in the US um, as it's because it's made the first that it's um, that it's out there. So so I'm now thoroughly used to being called Catherine. Perfect. I mean, it's yeah, it seems sort of fun. It's like, ooh, I mean, <laughs> how
1: is how is Catherine Isaac a different person than Jane Costello? Does <laughs> she dress differently? You know, I would think that would be incredibly fun to play with a bit. Yes, I've
0: got my drawer full of wigs. But uh, no, 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 she, she, I, I. yeah, I, I find it difficult to, although the novel is a different tone. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm still me, I guess.
1: Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I'm very interested as well to hear it's already been optioned.
0: Yes, yes. Incredibly exciting. Um, I mean, yeah, you know, the thing about, this is the kind of stuff that if you've been writing for a decade or more, you do, You don't spend a lot of time dreaming about it because to be honest, you know, I loved just being able to write and, you know, being able to do that for a living. But the question you are asked at every single book event I have literally ever done is, would you like your books to be made into a film? And at last (laughs) I can say, well, actually, (laughs) I have some news on that score. And yeah, it's really it's really exciting in a world that I've had you know, never had any experience of before. Um, so to see, to, to, to have that as um, potentially on the horizon is incredibly exciting.
1: Definitely. I mean, knowing that as I picked up the book, I could see it immediately because the setting mm-hmm. is so, um, it's so lush, you know, they're yes. in the south of France, they're at this beautiful, you know, hotel that was a manor house, you know, the whole kind of setting really lends itself to that kind of treatment yes
0: yes I think it does I mean the I mean I set it in France because that that's an you know the dordogne is an area that I know very well and you know I I absolutely love it we we were going um on holiday there as children from you know when I was kind of nine or ten so I I know it very well and I absolutely love it and one of the things I most enjoyed about writing this book was, um, you know, writing the description of all the sights and sounds and smells and um, tastes of that region, um, and and I think that's the feedback I've had from people is that people really en- enjoyed that element of the novel um, as well. So, so you know, yes, if that if that is made in, into a movie, I think that will be something it would, could be absolutely spectacular um on screen if if um if they pull it off have they asked you to do the adaptation or is someone else going to do someone it? else is is doing that um and uh but he's um he's extremely he's an acclaimed um I'm, he's extremely acclaimed and clearly definitely knows what he's doing <laughs> um it's Lionsgate who are. um who've optioned it and the team who um are in charge of this uh, a temple hill who um adapted um twilight and the fault in our stars um Mm. so they they basically they seem to special or what they liked you know what they say they specialize in is taking books that people have absolutely loved and creating movies that people love as well because we all know that you know there's nothing more disappointing when you've you've read a book that you've really adored and then you see it on screen and it just doesn't translate as well and the characters you don't feel them like you did with the book um and I think you know they've got a uh, they've really got a history of doing it well so so I'm very optimistic
1: (laughs) that's wonderful I was in one character in particular I wanted to talk about I was really touched by uh the character of William who is Jess's son yeah and um I thought you did such a beautiful job with him as, you know, a 10 year old in a in a tricky moment in his life. Yes. Um, (laughs) Thank you. With a tricky relationship (laughs) with his dad, who has sort of been missing for quite a large portion of his life and then going to France to sort of try to rekindle this connection between them. And I wondered if there was anybody in particular or or you just William popped up in the middle of your mind.
0: Um, Well, I've got three sons myself um and and i think that helps when you you know really not not in terms of you know creating this identikit character and you know i didn't he's not a kind of exact replica of any of my sons but i think it really helps um just to make things like dialogue authentic and you know, the things they're into, the games they're into and the way they speak and the way they act and the things that really kind of, you know, are concerning them. Um, yeah, it definitely, I you know, I've, I've had endless amounts of inspiration um, from my own <laughs> sons. Um, and, and actually, there's a lot of, probably the one thing we should explain as well is that there is a lot of, um, there is some humour in the book as well, you know, it, it deals with some big, big, difficult subjects and it's very sad in parts, but actually there's also a lot of humour and um, a lot of that does come from the children um, in the novel. Um, The children and the um, men who are attempting to (laughs) fling themselves
1: at either Jess or her (laughs) friends. Yes,
0: yeah, I mean, I think, um, because I had written romantic comedy for so long, you know, I didn't want to write something you know i I wanted to write something that was ultimately uplifting i suppose um you know i and i didn't want this book to be so to be dealing with so so many difficult issues that that it lost that light and shade that you actually get in real life if that makes sense you know we all have terrible sad things happen to us but you know the the we all have this ability to laugh um at other times in our in our life and i really wanted that to be reflected in the tone of the book,
1: yeah, definitely. I mean, nobody is just dealing with an illness in the family, and yeah. that's the only thing going on in their life.
0: Yeah, um, exactly.
1: And so, I think in in many ways, the the presence of both made them both more vivid. Like the uh-huh. the sort of beautiful moments in France, and then the things happening with her mom. You know, they made the things in France more bittersweet, and yes. the sort of moments with her mother more meaningful. So. I thought that worked really well.
0: Thank you. (laughs) Thanks.
1: Yeah. So how does it feel having gotten this one book out? Do you feel that is there another one that's presented itself in terms of an idea or is it sort of because you've done this other sort of type of writing for 10 years and then you have this one book present itself in the situation with your friend? Yeah. Does it feel like
0: there's more where that came from? Yes, definitely. Um, in fact, um, this this book because because this book has gone so big and it's been sold in so many places in the world, um, and it's been optioned. Um, I actually wrote this, and all the rights were sold more well two years ago, so or ju- yeah, just under two years ago. So, like I say, it's been quite a long time in production really it's been took a long time to edit and for everybody to kind of agree on a publication date and um so in the meantime i have actually been writing another book um which which is now finished and it's it's very much you know um it's a j it's a it's a catherine isaac book um you know it's it's got the it's got the ingredients that um that you me everything has got in the sense that you know there is a big emotional storyline, um, there is uh, a touch of humour, and there's 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 layers I suppose um, and and messages in it, and I think that's um, that very much that's kind of what I'm about now, and it's been lovely to kind of it, I, it's really I, like I say I've enjoyed. 10 years of writing romantic comedy as Jane Costello but this feels like a transition rather than a kind of one book bounce out of my genre and then back in um you know I really feel like this has been the most fulfilling book to write I've loved writing it it's been incredibly hard as you can you know as you can probably tell there's elements of it that took an awful lot of research because I had to make sure I got it completely right um, but those challenges have been so immensely um, rewarding that, you know, it's something that I, I, that that's the route I want to continue down. That's exciting to hear. I think is because as, you know,
1: American readers and then UK readers listening, you know, that you've transitioned, but then that there's more of it. You know, it's, there's yeah. nothing worse than finding out, you know, you love a book and there's never going to be another like <laughs> it. Um, it's sort of a heartbreaker. But I think that... I can see where, you know, opening this up in this way mm-hmm. of thinking, you could find more ways to yeah. come forward with more yeah, stories. Yeah, exactly.
0: And um, I mean, don't you know, don't get me wrong. The next one is is a very different storyline. There is still it's still set in a beautiful location. It's, it's in Italy, the next mm. one which was obviously these research trips are really tough. You know, somebody, someone's got to do really it. Really torturous. <laughs> so, so I suffered for my art and went on a trip to Italy. And um, yeah, but, uh, but the actual story, you know, the, the, the story of the relationship is very different, um, you know, completely different from the one in Yumi, everything. In fact, everything apart from, apart from the glorious, you know, location and sunshine. Uh, is completely different, um, but yeah, re- it's been really enjoy, really enjoyable to write.
1: It's interesting to know that um, that you're working with Jojo Moyes's um, her agent because yes. I can see why this book would appeal to someone who likes her books as well.
0: Yes, yeah, I think that's fair to say. There have been, um, I mean, it's hugely, com- you know, it's complimentary. By the way, I'm absolutely you know, I feel really humbled to um, to be compared to Jojo because I'm I'm a huge, huge fan. Um, and she's been so successful, you know, she really is living the dream. Um, and, uh, but yes, I think it's the element of, um, I don't know, the, I think the elements that people pick up on are, are the, the big emotional themes and, but, you know, characters that we can relate to and root, really root for um, I think they're they're really the elements in lots of ways. T- you see, to me, it, it feels completely different from from, um, you know, the, the, from her writing. But but at the same time, I do recognize that there's, there's those elements, you know, at, at the core that um, seem to really appeal to people. Yeah,
1: I think it's the the tone and this sort of um, a narrator who is both flawed and relatable.
0: Yes. Yeah. Not
1: perfect and honest about it. I think there's something about that that, that feels like a similar treatment of, of people. That she's not either no one is a total villain yes. in any book. And yeah. in either of your books. And no one is a total um angel. There's everybody is human, which yeah. I think is really appealing.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that's I think that's right. And actually, you know, one of the other things to, to say about about those elements Um, is I, one of the amazing things about this, this book for me has been the opportunity to work with some incredible people. Um, And so as well as Jojo's agent, I'm also edited by um, the same uh, editor in the US, um, Pamela Dorman. And, um, and I've just learned so much as a writer from that, from that process. I've never written for an American audience before. I've never had Um, an editor based in the US and it you know she was so challenging um, and just so insightful Um, I just felt like this this whole experience I've just learned so much and grown so much as a writer Um, and it's been hugely you know it's just been such a privilege.
1: Well before we wrap up I am curious like what was the most noteworthy about writing for an American audience versus a, a UK one like what were some of the biggest Ooh. differences you noticed
0: oh gosh um did they have you change mm. language or oh did yeah you... yeah yeah I think um yes so but n- nothing in terms of um I suppose in ter- because it's written in the first person so right. she still so Jess still calls her mum mum rather than mom you know oh, of course do so, you God. see what i mean so 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 that had to stay the same but there were elements that made complete sense to me but i uh, didn't wouldn't have worked i can't even think of an example of it now but there were a couple of phrases that i'd used that apparently you know wouldn't have been wouldn't have been known to an american audience so only small things really um but I think overall, um, it was less about the, those small kind of language difficulties that you know that, that are very easily overcome. you know, they're just tweaks. Um, right. I think I just the experience of being edited by Pam was, um, she encouraged me to actually write more, believe it or not, so so mm. there were elements and to really coax out some certain elements of the story. Um, so, you know, you, you might think of a, of a tough editor as being somebody who makes you cut a lot out. And that wasn't the case. She she kind of basically made me coax out elements of the story that she felt worked really well um, and obviously trim the bits that she didn't. But the, the, as a result of which I did actually a lot of um, adding chapters, which is probably I've never done before. Um, Mm. And yeah, and you know, it really strengthened the novel in ways that I could never have anticipated. So yeah, it was a fantastic experience. That sounds amazing.
1: (laughs) Well, I wanna thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. I know everyone will enjoy hearing about the behind the scenes of a book that I suspect is going to be seen um, in everybody's bag by the the (laughs) beach all summer. I hope so, Um, that would be amazing. No, I'm certain you're going to see that. For the the gorgeous cover yeah. and the um, the wonderful setting that it's set in, I think that'll lure them in and then they'll find something, I think, a lot more thought-provoking than they expected, okay. um, which is great. So thank you for writing it and thank you for coming on to speak with oh, us.
0: thank you so much. It's been lovely.
1: I want to take a moment to make another listening suggestion for what you can download with your free credit at secretlibrarypodcast.com slash audible. In addition to the books discussed by each of the authors in the interviews today, which are both actually really well narrated, I wanted to suggest another book that isn't quite as obvious as suggesting what you're already hearing about in the interviews. One of my very, very favorite things I've listened to is a two-part series, so you would get it in two different halves. Um, is a lecture series called Theater of the Imagination by Clarissa Pinkola Estes, who you may remember, who is the author of Women Who Run With the Wolves. And the thing I love about this series is it is a series of lectures that she did about fairy tales. And she not only tells the stories, which she does beautifully, but she takes them apart from a Jungian perspective and looks at how these fairy tales and these stories interact with our culture. It's an incredible listen. Um, I recommend it to people all the time, and I've listened to it over and over and over again, not only because it's wonderful, but also because her voice is amazing. So that is theater of the imagination. There is a part one and a part two. It's a really great use of a credit, and I think you'll really enjoy it. All right, let's get back to the show. My next guest is Tom Rockman, who is the author of four works of fiction. His best-selling debut, The Imperfectionists in 2010, was translated into 25 languages. He's also written the critically acclaimed follow-up, The Rise and Fall of Great Powers, a satirical audiobook in stories called Basket of Deplorables, and an upcoming novel set in the art world, The Italian Teacher, which is what we're discussing today. He was born in London and raised in Vancouver, and Tom studied cinema at the University of Toronto and journalism at Columbia University in New York. He worked at the Associated Press as a foreign news editor in Manhattan headquarters, and then became a correspondent in Rome. He also reported from India, Sri Lanka, Japan, South Korea, Egypt, Turkey, and elsewhere. To write fiction, he left the Associated Press and moved to Paris, supporting himself as an editor at the International Herald Tribune. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and NewYorker.com, among other publications. He now lives in London. It was such a fun thing to be able to speak to Tom, given what a fan I am of the imperfectionists, as many of us are. But one of the things I love most about this conversation is talking about how writing a work of fiction changes the writer as much as it changes the people who read the book. Um, I loved hearing about how his concept of fatherhood changed and, and what he thought fatherhood would be like by, dis, uh, by exploring a character who is extremely difficult and challenging and yet at the same time maddening and charismatic. So I loved exploring this different side of writing, which I think we need to get into more in the show, which is what you benefit from, how you change as a writer when you write a book. I know you'll love hearing from Tom Rockman as much as I did. Hi Tom, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me on. So, I am really thrilled to talk to you about the Italian teacher as a as a big fan of the Imperfectionists, and there there are many things about it actually that I was that were noteworthy to me, and that I think are, are important to discuss when, when talking about you know creating a compelling book. And one is that I've noticed that there is a trend in fiction over the last number of years to tell a story over a very compressed period of time. And this is a trend that you have resisted in your books, telling the entire story of a newspaper, or in this case, the entire story in selections, of course, of a character's life. And I'm wondering how, um, how you Manage or construct a story that keeps dipping back in over time periods as you go, and how that works for you in terms of constructing the story is just—is that just how you see it from the beginning, or is that a choice that you're making for a particular reason?
2: Well, first of all, it's interesting to say to hear that you say that um, that there's a trend lately of compressed narratives. I wasn't aware of that, but you're going to make me uh, rush to my local bookshop after we talk and, and look into that because I may have been reading a lot of them without even realizing that was that was a style at the moment. In the case of The Italian Teacher, uh, it was a an ambition of mine for a long time to try writing a full life story. And when I read those in books, I absolutely love them. Uh, a book like, say, Stoner having been, by John Williams, having been uh, an example that gained a lot of attention recently, but also another one, Any Human Heart by William Boyd, is another one that I, I really liked a lot. And um, I found something... So gripping about the 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 long process of a life, so that the character wasn't just um, fully formed with a, a backstory conceived. By the author and all kind of happening off stage, but that the backstory, that the whole story takes place before the reader, and that by the time they reach their old age and have those grey hairs and those scars, then they all feel earned to the reader, and I I found that to be so satisfying um, on the other side of the of this process uh, when I was. When I was enjoying stories myself, that I was tempted to attempt one myself with this. So yes, I did absolutely plan it, plan it from the outset that I would do this kind of a book um, and tell this kind of a long story. One of the challenges, and there are always structural challenges in every single new book that one tries. I think that each one you have to figure out how to write it, Um, and though you do gain. Uh, you do gain technical skills from having done the previous ones. That each new one has its own particular features, especially if you're if you're hoping to to try something a little different. And um, in this case, one of the difficult parts or parts that that were were even exciting to try to figure out was exactly which bits of the life you're going to tell because um, if a life is you know is is even if it's if it's 40 years or 80 years or 100 years whatever length it is then it's far too much going on to to uh, to put in a single book so of course you have to you have to select And you then have to select the degree of detail with which you're going to tell bits. So are you going to have sections of exposition to fill in the scenes, let's say, or are you just going to have scenes and um, and leave the exposition uh, to the imagination of the reader, or maybe slip it in in the subsequent scene? Um, All of those sorts of technical questions were very much uh, very much came about in in the the writing of this book. So. well, the, the way that I did it was really by having separate time periods in this character's life. So it, when you first meet the, the main character, who's called Pinch Bavinsky, and he's the, he's the son of a great painter, one of the great painters of the post-war period, it's 1955, and he's growing up in Rome and his father is an American his mother is a Canadian they're both artists but she is uh, is is exquisitely talented but not uh, recognized for her for her talents whereas the father is recognized perhaps all too much and that's the setting in which we find this this little boy 1950s rollicking Rome and the expat community there and then um, we see him Growing up to into his uh, let's say early teens, and then there's a a leap, and we find him in the 1970s, and he is now at university in Toronto, studying there. And then there are subsequent leaps over the course of his life that he he progresses um, into into the last stage of his life, and we see we see that not uh, with every instant told, but with the most important sequences of his life told, um, and. The, the, the tricky and interesting bit is the, is how to fit in that stuff that you're not including um, and how to fit it in uh, in a way that informs the reader so that they have enough of the story that they can understand it on a very fundamental level but also um, so that you're building up the, the, the substance of this character and demonstrating how they've changed I have to say though that I actually like having um, having a, a a leap like this. I like having a leap from one person to another person who is in fact the same person. I I've, I've done that right in some of my previous in my my novel before this, the rise and fall of great powers, was one in which uh, the the time sequences leapt about a great deal. So it wasn't it wasn't uh, going forward all the time. In fact, it started at one pit and then jump to the past and then jump to to the present again and then to the past so it was it was contrasting the different bits of a of a of a single life and um in this way uh, i i did something that was not totally dissimilar from that with the the significant exception that it was all going in the in one direction which is from start to finish and um and the i think that that what what I liked about that, what I like about about these kinds of juxtapositions, is um, the opportunity to think in in quite radical ways about how a person develops over time, and the fact that you really aren't the same person that you were, or uh, you. Some people cling desperately to to try to be, to try to remain the same person that they always were. So sort of the psychological and emotional equivalent of plastic surgery that they're. Desperately, uh, <laughs> desperately trying to to still be uh, the the youth that they were, with the same political opinions that they had, with the same uh, emotional connections that they had, and sometimes that can have uh, an awful cost. And other people, by contrast, will shift quite um, dramatically from one stage of life to another because they believe that that's what you do when you're at this age. You're now middle-aged or now old, and you should dress that way or behave that way, and uh, in both in both of those extremes and and there's an effort to to actively um, uh, challenge and change and determine um, your character as it goes along but the, the truth is that that in any case you're not you're not really the same person that you were uh, and I'm fascinated by by those those changes in life as much as in fiction I think that fiction offers a um, an outstanding opportunity to think about that because of the fact that you can compress in precisely the way that we're talking about that we have these experiences of seeing this not very clearly in ourselves usually but in our friends and in our family we really notice their aging and their changes and I personally am absolutely fascinated by how people become who they are and who they uh, who they will be eventually and um, very recently I was doing a I did a uh, some some promotional events across North America. And over the course of those, I ended up meeting a lot of people I'd known in the past, in the distant past, maybe 20 years ago, and reconnecting with them. And it's so fascinating to see how people, how, you know, partly how they've aged physically. Partly how they've what they've done with their lives, but also how there are elements that remain the same. How there may be an affinity that resists all of the ravages of time, an affinity that you have with them and a closeness that is what perhaps brought you two together when you met as little kids or in college or whenever it was. And so I personally am am fascinated by those by the way that people um, become who they are, and yet in life. It takes a lifetime to see that and in fiction it takes 400 pages so um so it's a it's it's one of those glorious little opportunities that literature offers to experience something with a a richness depth and perspective that life rarely affords
1: did you so here's a question if because there is you know you're dipping in and sometimes it's only a few months between segments and sometimes it's you know several years that you have to catch up did you keep track of everything that happened between those times like did you have a timeline running for yourself like okay it's been 5 years this has happened to Natalie this has happened to Pinch this has happened to Bear you know i mean keeping track of Bear's marriages i could see a whole spreadsheet um and his his offspring and and all of this um as well as their names and their nicknames so how were you kind of holding on to the spaces that existed between the segments that were told in the book.
2: Yeah, I did uh, I did some of the things that you said. If I knew how to use a spreadsheet, I probably would have, and maybe it would have helped me. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I did um, map out and draw out and write out as much as I could about the in-between bits, because I, I've always found that, that the more you create... Um, of the scenes that you're not going to use the more real are the scenes that you are going to use uh, I think it's something that that uh, Hemingway pointed out in very eloquent terms that I can't remember annoyingly something about an iceberg um, but in any case it's something that it, it's a it's a principle that I I believe to be valid and demonstrably so for for every writer when you uh, when you simply cut a scene you'll find that the adjacent scenes are are richer for the fact that that scene was written, uh, which is to say was conceived by you, that you understood how that person ended up in this room rather than just starting in this room. So um, I value that stuff immensely, um, and I also greatly value editing, revision, and cutting out things that, that aren't uh, absolutely mandatory Um, i don't want anything extra in my books i want the story to move and i want the the characters and the scenes to be as rich as possible without the sense that i'm dawdling or that the reader is so um so there's a lot that always gets cut out and um, and there are also scenes as you were or sections as you were suggesting that are not ever intended to be in the book but that are um that are are a kind of uh, a a phantom presence uh, in, in the novel, at least in my knowledge of it. And, um, yeah, so, so I had a timeline in particular was vital because the backdrop to the entire book is the art world and one of the, the small tales that's being told in, the, in that background is the, the history of modern and contemporary art and how it's gone from, from where it was in, uh, just after the war to where it is now. And I enjoyed not just looking into that, um, but also I wanted to to tell people how we got to the the kind of uh, art that sometimes baffles people today. And um, as a result of of that uh, history, I had to be completely accurate with the timeline. So if, if Pinch was five in scene in scene one, and he becomes 22 in scene 18. Then that needs to be. Uh, I, I, it needs to track with the conversations about the art world that are going on, uh, and about his father's position in that art world as well. So, um, so that was the timeline was vital and a sense of what these characters had been doing. Uh, and as I said as well, there are, there are also bits that just that aren't there that won't ever see the light of day. That I'll never. That that I should probably burn, but that uh, yeah. <laughs> I can't quite bring myself to. But that nonetheless are are, are non-existent little ghosts uh, between the chapters.
1: I-, I wondered about that because it, it felt completely almost like um, like okay, here are the selected parts of the biography, but there mm-hmm. are all these other bits that aren't there, and um, and I think given how rich the characters are, it was also fascinating to me the character of Bear. Bavinsky, the the famous painter who is Pinch's father, um, was such a satisfying character to read. And I wondered about the construction of him because he doesn't get, obviously, nearly as much time on the page as Pinch does, yet he is such a huge kind of bravura character that I wondered um, how it was to come up with a character in the setting of such a period of time when there were so many artists with such gigantic personalities like that. I, I wondered... I assumed it was immensely satisfying.
2: It was hugely fun. Yeah, I mean, writing a a, a character who is sometimes appalling is can be a lot of fun because um, because this is a a, um, a wildly egotistical, um, self-important uh, but very talented person who is happy to spew his life in all directions in all ways and uh, to elbow those aside who don't um, who don't fit his wishes and needs and if you met such a person you would run but on the page that kind of a person can be quite fascinating from the safety of of your of your armchair um, or from the safety of a of a gallery uh, to look at the these sorts of works and um, and i i think as well that that it is true that the history of the arts—not just um, not just painting, but not just the visual arts—the arts in general—has included an an extraordinary number of uh, people who have behaved pretty reprehensibly in their private lives, and that's something that that I was really interested in exploring in this book, asking a question of um, of why. It is that so many of the greats are so awful, and whether there is any necessary connection between um, between awful behavior and good art, or whether it's uh, a falsehood that people play off in order to take advantage of those around them. And so these are the sorts of questions that I was I was plumbing in the uh, in the. In this book and that then interestingly to me ended up bursting out in public around the time of the publication yes. with all of the uh, um appalling uh, tales that we're now familiar with of of um bad behavior and even crime in in the arts um so that's been an interesting sideline but to to return to your your original question in in the construction of, of such a, a a difficult human being but a but a one who whose life force is so intense and and uh, aggressive it was um there was a, a lot of research that i did to try to lend authenticity to the to the scene but it was also uh, imagination um and uh and and as well a kind of projection of the worst version of myself uh mm. not not that um, that I, I hope there is there are many similarities between me and this this terrible guy, but but that um, it was certainly true to me that it, that to uh, it seemed to me that that to um, achieve something or to try to to write to try to do something in the arts throughout my twenties and thirties I had to dedicate myself with a kind of um, uh, ferocious single-mindedness. Now. I have to stress this does not mean in my case or in any others that um, that uh, awful behaviour is in any way justified or is in any way linked to creating uh, things that you value. But what I'm talking about in particular is just the the kind of shutting out all other aspects of one's life uh, in the interest of just trying to achieve something difficult um, and. Um, and so I found myself doing this through my 20s and 30s and and letting uh, leaving lots of other parts of my life uh, fallow and as I was nearing the age of 40 I started to think about having a family and was worrying about whether um, I could justify that whether the work that I was doing was was the sort of work that perhaps would harm people around me if I if I were to particularly if I were to have a child whether, whether working in this, in this way, uh, would end up causing irreparable damage to another human being that I couldn't tolerate, uh, having caused. So in a way that writing this book was a way for me to look at the very worst possible iteration of that kind of a person and see what it meant. What, and I tell the story, the novel is told through the perspective, not of the great artist, but of the great artist's son. So the one who is most, painfully affected by it so I I made myself look very closely at this and um, and I had to thereby assess whether I felt that this kind of this kind of step would be right for me and uh, right on a human level and um, and so it yeah so it was it was a way to as well as a as a as a, a personal side of the the telling of the story it was a way for me to try to come to terms with that and figure out what to do
1: yeah I mean and it's interesting The way that you describe him because and perhaps this is a defect of my own character i can see the appeal of of how charming he could be because if he was just horrible and Mm -hmm. rude and dismissive but he i think in some ways he's he's almost worse and more painful because he sort of shines this light on someone at a time and and gives them like total love and affection and then just kind of carelessly goes off somewhere else yeah so I can certainly see how people got hooked in.
2: Um, no, I mean I don't think it's a, a personal, a character defect on your part at all. I think that that uh, it's it's the, if anything, it's a it's a the the dangerous power and potency of that kind of person is that that people who are. Um, The the often the worst people are have have a great sort of charisma because if they lacked any such charisma then their ability to harm would be diminished uh, immensely and so um, there's there's a a a massive advantage that they gain by developing that and particularly if they're not terribly worried about the consequences of what they do then they can act and say all sorts of things Um, but he is meant to be he's very much meant to be an, an amazingly charming person and a complicated character i didn't want to do somebody who is just awful because the the balance of this is that it had to be believable that uh, those around him would be so connected and drawn to this this uh, magnetic figure so if i'm going to claim that he is the he is magnetic that he's this big flaming sun at the center of of the 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 family solar system then he has to be somehow captivating, at the same time as 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 doing things that are hurtful, and so that balance right. was was a was a big challenge in building this character, and um, and it, it's also I mean I'm aware that that uh, that people um, they that some people read wanting to like the characters and some people don't mind about that they just want interesting characters and so um, i had to think about a way that that i would have somebody who was in any case um, sufficiently s- seductive that that you would <laughs> you would be drawn into to wanting to spend time with him on the page even as you question some of his his behavior but his you know the the, the nature of his His actions only come clear gradually because you're seeing this largely from the perspective of the 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 son. Although it's told in third person, and initially he's just a little boy, so his his perspective is is not is not entirely central at the start. And he's there in all of these scenes, but he's just a little child and has no ability to comprehend much of what's going on. And so these things are swirling around him. But it has to be told in the way that you can see how he would be, um, he would be a, a lured into this, uh, the role that he takes with his father as his father's aid and assistant in, in many ways, and um, subordinating his own aspirations to those of his father, to, to his father's glory. Uh, and that has to be somehow believable. And, and to be believable, this man has to be complicated. He can't just be a thug. And so, uh, so I mean, yeah, I'm glad to hear that he was somehow a charmer on the page because he has to be.
1: Yes, he was. And I think um, I love this concept, which I I look forward to potentially people listening, exploring, which is take your worst case scenario or the, the, the most kind of Intense fear you have of what you might turn into under certain circumstances, and turn it into a character as a way to explore it and to get a very um, a fascinating and, and rich character into your into your work. I think that's a wonderful idea. Well, I Although never probably I, not pleasant to experience while you're doing it.
2: Well, it was it felt needful to me in a way, and uh, I mean, you know, talking about it now, I, I'm conceptualizing it all and describing it to you in this way. It 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 came about. In, in, a, in a more natural, organic way, I, I think. Uh, I think that, that I, was, um, I was, however, troubled by and transfixed by this question for many years. And I can see in my previous writing how, how, how worries about parenthood uh, kind of appear at various stages. And I know exactly where those, where those spring from and in me but I must say as well that interestingly having tackled it so directly in this book and having worked through it I really feel like I did resolve the the, this thing that had so troubled and daunted me and now I have a child and I'm incredibly happy that I do and I adore him and uh, and I feel like I resolved this issue and um, maybe the outcome is that I'm a, a lesser writer as a result of it but I'm very happy with the result.
1: Yes. Amazing. Well, I, I can't imagine that a lesser writer would be the result if you have managed to create a character that is compelling and work something out that feels very satisfying personally. I think that's possibly the ideal, ideal results.
2: Well, it is interesting that, you know, what you're, what you're suggesting about this idea of, of using um, a a story to try out the worst the things that you fear in yourself it's an interesting idea and I'd love to I would be very curious to know if other writers have done this or if other writers try it how it comes out whether it whether it's useful in the way that it was for me it was in a way I guess sort of frightening to start doing it because uh, this was what I feared you know I feared this kind of being this sort of a person and um, and that the character is not is really not me and maybe that somehow made it feel easier you know physically he's not me he's not he's living in a different time he's he's a uh, doing a different art form and all of that sort of thing um, so it was kind of it was just a it was it was like um, exercising both with an exercising with an E and with an O, uh, the, the, kind of, <laughs> the kind of devil uh, that I feared uh, might, might be in me.
1: Well, I, I think it's rewarded all of us with the results. And, um, and I hope that everyone listening, do leave something in the comments if you've tried this or you know hit, hit me up on Twitter and let me know your thoughts so that we can know if anyone has tried this technique and what the result has been. I would be very curious to hear as well. Well, Tom, it has been wonderful talking with you, and I hope everybody runs out and gets the Italian teacher, not only for the gorgeous cover, but for the book it is. um, It's a really compelling and enjoyable, rich, delicious read. So I encourage everyone to check it out. And thank you so much for coming on and talking about it with us.
2: Thanks so much. It was a pleasure speaking.
1: Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram, where I'm Donahue. That's at C A R O D O N A H U E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.